We're living in interesting times. If you go to the grocery store right now, you might not be able to find beef or pork or chicken or pet food or toilet paper. And buying beef from a ranch has always been tough because most people don't have enough freezer space or they don't know a rancher or don't live near one. The Six Ranch is solving that for you. This year, we only have eight spots left in our grassroots beef club. And it works like this. The first week of every month, we ship you a cooler full of all-natural grass-fed Coriani steaks, roasts, and burger from December until May. And being a member in this club also gets you an invite to come tour the Six Ranch during calving season in May and stay for a hosted dinner. Deliveries are available to Oregon, Washington, California, parts of Idaho, and Nevada. Now, this ranch has been in my family since 1884. It's one of the oldest businesses in the state of Oregon. We raise our cattle ethically and use traditional cowboy practices blended with modern grazing techniques. We also put a huge amount of work into wildlife conservation for species like mule deer, salmon, steelhead, rainbow trout, upland bird species. This is healthy beef that you can feel good about eating. Learn more about the Six Ranch and get one of the last shares available at sixranch.com. We've got a lot of good stuff out there. I think there's a lot of good fundamentals, but they're not they're not sexy. Like, you mean you just want me to practice breathing 20 minutes a day? Yeah, that's what I want you to do. But I want you to do it with perfection. And then I want you to do it in cold water, or I want you to do it in extreme conditions, or I want you to do it um, in replicating processes that you're going to experience under stress. Because that breathing does you no function if you can't execute it under duress. In, in you're hitting on something that I wanted to bring up earlier, but there's a lot of misconceptions about practice. And I feel like we, we grew up with this, this phrase that practice makes perfect, but it doesn't. Practice makes permanent, um, but making your practice relevant, applicable, realistic, um, repeatable, those are very, very important and, and underrated. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Uh, do you think you're the only psychologist who's ever done a combat mission in a tank? I think I am. 
Well, I, I, I think I think I'm definitely one of very few, but yeah, I think I'm definitely one. I've never talked to anyone that's done a combat mission in a tank. I've talked to psychs who have done patrols before on foot, but uh, no no uh, no psychs that have done a a combat patrol in a in a tank. On foot's lame. I mean, why why in the world would you carry a gun when your gun can carry you? <laughs> hey, I, I got to tell you, I was just talking about this this week because I, I mentioned to some coworkers that I was doing this podcast with you, and that was one of the uh, most memorable experiences in my life as a psychologist. <laughs> it was memorable <laughs> for me too. Um, so uh, we're we're here with uh, with Ryan Maid, and uh, and I met Ryan in Afghanistan in. Uh, probably July of 2012 I had just been hurt and needed some help kind of getting getting my mind right and when you're when you're working on on PTSD when it's combined with a traumatic brain injury there's a lot of overlap in symptoms and it makes it makes it difficult because you don't know you know what's causing the problem and and how to treat it so it it's really complicated and then I was also trying to stay in country and continue the combat mission and Ryan was in country working um, as a psychologist, which um, in the Marine Corps we call a wizard. Um, and uh, so I was I was off to see the wizard, and uh, absolutely instrumental in, in keeping me in the fight, as well as a lot of other Marines um, during your time. Talk to me a little bit about like what your job was in the Navy and, and how that all got started. Yeah, and I just want to clarify the the wizard. My call sign ended up being the wandering wizard during that <laughs> during that deployment because I I traveled so much, and so that's kind of stuck with me. And I, I don't know if you did you know the historical context of why people called us the wizard? No, I don't. Yeah, so I guess it originates to back back in the old the old days. I guess the old country they would say that uh, if you went to see the wizard, oftentimes you wouldn't return back to duty, uh, and then the psychiatrist. They, they would oftentimes prescribe the magic potions. So that's why they, they were called the wizards on the, on the psychiatry front. And so we spent some time differentiating between psychiatry and psychologist. But, and, uh, and let's go ahead and make that distinction right now for those who don't know, because I, I certainly didn't at that point in my life. Yeah, so a, a psychologist traditionally is, although there are some, some pathways for prescription privileges for psychologists for advanced education beyond getting your doctorate degree in, in psychology, but... Psychologists traditionally do more from the neck up type work without medications and psychiatry, although they do neck neck up work between the ears, um, they can do therapy and or a psychotropic medication um, for for mental things going on, whether that be diagnostic in, in nature or not. And so um, ranging from sleep issues to severe mental health uh, issues. So. Um, oftentimes, like even in working in professional sports, people don't understand the difference between the two. So you spend a lot of time educating. And as my uncle used to say, uh, a tryst is, is medications most generally, and a gist is, is, is talking about things. So uh, I used to chuckle at him making that differentiation, but um, there are certainly some differences in training education. And a psychiatrist tends to go to medical school where a psychologist goes to graduate school. And psychology often ends up in a clinical setting um, doing more research and studies. Is that also correct? Yeah, there's, there's many hats. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about being a Navy psychologist is, is that I could wear a lot of those hats, ranging from program development to performance enhancement to risk mitigation to selection to um, doing traditional talk therapy. And so 
my, my time in the Navy was, uh, was fantastic because it afforded me the opportunity to get to where I'm at now. And, and I wore a lot of those hats because when I was with, prior to being embedded with the 6th Marine Regiment, I was in a traditional clinical setting in a hospital doing a postdoctoral fellowship. So I'd completed my education and then did a postdoctoral training and then went with the, the Marines with 6th Marine Regiment and then had worked towards Naval Special Warfare where I was doing mostly stress inoculation training, performance enhancement, and uh, assessment, what they call assessment and selection. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of variability in a, a psychologist role. Psychiatry has that too. It's just the getting the medical degree first is was way more labor intensive than getting a doctor degree in, in, in psychology. Yeah. What was your path to get into Navy psychology? So uh, I kind of went a, a non-traditional path. Um, there's a few different pipelines to get into the Navy as a psychologist. I'd always had the call to serve, but sports were always my first priority. And I wanted to play, wanted to do sports, but my every generation of the made family had served in the, in the military, where that, mostly Marines, believe it or not. And uh, so my father had served, my grandfather, my great-grandfather um, had all served and mostly in the Marine Corps, some in the Navy, but I'd had always had that call to serve, but one of the go sports first and uh, ended up playing football for a year at a division two school and then did track and field for four years. And then I got my grad degree. I was a, a much heavier individual at the time. So there's no way I would have made weight regulations out of college and uh, which would have been right around 2003, 2004, when I graduated undergrad, went straight to grad school. Um, got my education and then I was basically sitting in my office post-grad degree saying, wow, this is what I spent a lot of money to do. And I wasn't really happy to do that. I wanted to do something unique and, and having the call to serve, we were, this would have been 2009, 2008 timeframe. And once I completed all my degree requirements, I said, let's give this uh, active duty service a try. And uh, the Navy was offering a direct accession program with a postdoctoral fellowship. So I'd already completed one year of postdoctoral fellowship and and the Navy was offering this. I applied, got in, and and um, as they would say, like you have your wide open career in the Navy and spent seven years in the Navy. Nice. Uh, I remember one, once I rotated back to my unit and we we're going to start doing patrols again. Um, we we're getting ready to get back in the tank. And uh, and you said, uh, what's your level of stress right now on, on a scale of one to 10? I was like, fuck, man, I don't know, like a three or four. Like, I, I, I don't really know. Like, this is kind of my comfort zone right now. And then I said, uh, well, why don't you just come with us? Like, I can train you to be a tank loader in like seven minutes. And you kind of got a little bit wide eyed, but also <laughs> excited and like, OK, so um, got in the in the turret with uh, with me and my gunner and, and loader, and they talked talked you through it. And we went out and did a combat patrol, and and uh, and it was all good. Like n- nothing super scary happened. But it was during Ramadan, and that night we got attacked at our base, which we got a- attacked every single night during Ramadan after evening prayer. And uh, and I think I wandered out of my hooch and like my underwear and my flip flops and uh, <laughs> and uh, and and sappy plates. And went out to the berm and uh, you were pretty wide eyed at that point, too. And I said, Doc, what's your level of stress right now? <laughs> I, I think it's fantastic because your memory of this is way more detailed than mine was. And, and your uh, your assessment of my stress level was completely accurate. <laughs> 
<laughs> because uh, I, I've I've shared I've shared those two experiences uh, a few times in my life since then, and and those were memorable experiences in my life because we were I was in the tail end of the deployment. I was like seventy five percent through. And I remember my decision-making process when you put me on the spot about inviting me on the patrol was like, well, would the commanding officer support this? Because, you know, the first time I'd went out outside the wire, uh, he had said, hey, doc, don't go out earning the Navy cross. And that was his, uh, his simple instructions that he gave me. I think he knew that I was uh, had a lot of energy. And uh, I, I, my decision-making process at that point was like, well, would this would this the colonel blessed this uh, decision and and we went with it and and uh, i don't regret my decision in doing that at all yeah neither neither of us got in trouble so it's all good <laughs> <laughs> uh but but really really experiential because uh not only was i there to monitor your stress levels but i was experiencing my own duress at the same time and i think it's important in in any profession or field to to understand the level of the person that you're working with right and I talk about that with hunting and guiding all the time. Um, they're very, very different things. And I really encourage guides to continue hunting on their own so that they can remember what that end of the gun is like, how, how to experience that, because then they can help people. Same thing with fishing, same thing with anything. Like you, you have to have experiential practice with the person that you're trying to help so that you can understand better what they're going through and, and all of that stuff. And I think it makes everybody more effective. 100%. And, and empathy is a real thing. And, you know, the, the APA ethics code that I got my degree uh, underneath doesn't really talk about uh, ways to develop empathy with the armed forces. And, and, and ultimately, it's not me kicking that uh, ethics code under the bus. It's just that in a time of war, and you're asked to relate to a population that is doing things that the average human being doesn't do as, and as a psychologist is how do you how do you relate to that? And how do you experience that? And and, and you're 100 right. When I, I I understand that on a different level, um, but I definitely have um, an understanding of kind of how my mind and body operate under a sympathetic state for sure. Well, you're you're a badass guy for doing that. Um, <laughs> after working with the Sixth Marine Regiment, what did you move on to do? So I, I went on to uh, Naval Special Warfare Training Command. Uh, so where basic underwater demolition seal training is. And uh, I was the command psychologist there for four years. And my, my role there was more assessment selection of um, officers and, and enlisted folks in terms of overseeing the psychological screening process for that um, for them. And then I was what they call a SEER psychologist, which is survival, evasion, evasion resistance, and escape. Um, psychologist. So this survival school that is there um, in Coronado, um, I was basically the psychological safety manager for that particular schoolhouse. Uh, and then and then I would also work with individual students and staff members on any type of issues that they may be going through uh, during training, post-training, or coming back as an instructor. Because oftentimes the instructors that come to that schoolhouse are there to take a, you know, take a knee and, and, and reset and, and, and find other ways to build upon their strengths. What percentage of, of war fighting would you say is mental versus physical? I think that's a very complicated question, but I, but I think there is definitely um, a psychological aspect to performance, whether you're uh, a war fighter or an athlete, but I, I think that it's variable depending on the human being in terms of how much it impacts the task at hand. And so 
Uh, you know, I like to think of things of, in buckets. We have the psychological bucket, we have the technical bucket, we have the tactical bucket, and then the physical bucket. And I think if you view it like an equalizer across a stereo, I, I think each one of those areas are, are different for each human being. And we spend so much time training on the technical and tactical aspect, um, oftentimes we, we negate some of the psychological aspects of training. And um, so I think it's variable, but I think there is a, a significant component, especially when people start shooting back at you or you have a bad experience and, and you're asked to go back out and do your job and, and understanding how your mind's really going to function because we know that your brain doesn't forget really abnormal experiences. Right. And a lot of what inevitably happens is we we work on damage after it's occurred rather than resilience beforehand. Is anything that you were doing with uh, with naval special warfare about strengthening the mind on on the front side? Yeah, there is. And, and um, you know, the beauty of that population is, is, is that it's highly selective, it's highly competitive, and um, there is an educational component to traditional psychological skills training um, for, from a preventative standpoint with the hopes that it improves resiliency and it hopes that it gives them a framework on how to manage uh, stressful situations. And it's a, I think that's an evolutionary process. I think it's come a long way. I know things have changed significantly even since my departure in 2017. Um, but, you know, I, my theory and philosophy is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And if we wait until bad things happen to see our mind and body operate to that, and then we're probably losing that battle. And so uh, when we think about operating at a high level, this is where a lot of stress inoculation training, and I'm sure you can relate to this through your, through your pipeline and how you got to where you are. There's usually a reason and, and there's usually a technical and tactical and psychological reason of why you're doing what you're doing. And so a lot of the schoolhouses that the United States military have are, are centered around stress inoculation and, and stressing out the human being. And how do we know when we're stressing them out too much pre, uh, pre-combat versus not enough. And I think that's the, the, the gazillion dollar question of is how do we know when we're doing too much of that? And they've done a lot of different studies through, through the work of guys like Andy Morgan, who's a, a psychiatrist who studied a lot of brain-based behavior under stress, looking at blood levels, uh, saliva levels, and, and looking at cortisol and um, things on the uh, hypopituitary axis in terms of how, how, how we handle stress. And so so there's an aspect of talk education, and then there's the aspect of training. And, and we try to mirror those and, and, and take the talk aspect of education, if you will, like the traditional psychological education and apply it to training and have them apply it under duress. And, and we've got a long ways to go, I think, in that space, but I think we're definitely putting a lot of efforts there. Do you have any advice for people, generally speaking, on how to improve their ability to handle stress before that stress actually occurs? And talking about stress inoculation, like whether they're a, a ballroom dancer or, or a banker or an athlete, are there any like general methods or practices that people can put themselves through? Yeah, I think it's understanding, closing that gap between training and practice. And, and one of the things that you hear a lot of our military personnel say um, is the mission was oftentimes easier than the training. And, you know, I believe there's a, a famous quote of, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed more, right? And, and I think that is something that a lot of our military 
does really well on professional athletes. And so whether you're a ballroom dancer or a baseball player or a football player or, 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 or a rifleman, it's understanding how do we close the gap between training and real life experiences. And so um, if you're a baseball player, what, what, are the, what are the physiological, psychological, technical and tactical states under pressure? And how do we replicate that in training? And then how do we get our mind to accept what's happening and not centered around outcomes? And so um, I don't know how technical you want me to get, but if, if we activate our sympathetic nervous system to say, like sometimes with baseball players, their heart rates get up to like 90% max heart rate in performance. And our training is only getting about 60% heart rate. How do we know what our mind and body is going to do under a game-like scenario, in a game, and then when we get that sympathetic, like I it kind of alluded to a little bit before, is, is that there are some structures in our brain that doesn't, that doesn't forget what it feels like, and it's based on outcomes at that point. So if we have a really catastrophic outcome when our nervous system is that amped up, the next time our nervous system gets amped up, we're at the disposal of how we view that experience. Um, and we, we use examples like this for, let's say, a, a baseball pitcher, who is getting 90% max heart rate, and then he's in the first inning of a game, and he gives up a home run to the first batter, first pitch, and next time he's in a hairy situation like that, is, is what is he going to remember? His first thought's likely going to go to, well, the last time I got this jacked up, I had a bad outcome. Now, how am I going to handle it this time? And we talk about appraisal and reappraisal a lot in, in, in my industry, is, is how we view the event and then how we reappraise the event. In other words, because, because our heart rate's going to, be, going to be amped up regardless. The situational demands is going, to, is going to jack up our heart rate regardless, whether it's a good outcome or a bad outcome. The heart rate is going to get amped up. It's just our view of that heart rate that really, really matters. And at what heart rate do we start to see the, the, the decision-making process fall apart? Like, where do people start missing steps? I think that's person-dependent. Is it? And... and we just know when we get above, I would say when we start seeing probably 80% and above, and don't quote me on that, I'd have to go back and look at some stress research there, but when we start getting above a certain threshold, we know that our mind starts racing a little bit, or we might have um, some impact on our endocrine system. And so prolonged stress, prolonged combat operations, prolonged um, athletic stress, if we don't give our mind and body the ample time to digest what's happening is, is that basically all of our minor organs start to shut down and it really activates that true fight, flight, freeze response to send blood to our major limbs. And, and really your decision making kind of goes down. So it's less about heart rate, more probably about stress at that point. So we, we, we know that when we activate a stress, stress system that you're going to get when you activate that fight, flight, freeze response, your, your minor organs are going to begin to shut down for survival mode, which is why when you're, I'm sure as you talk with, in your career field with hunting now, like you see animals probably do some goofy stuff when they're really stressed out. It's because they have shut down all those symptoms or all those systems to function on surviving, fighting, or freezing. Yep. I just wrote an article about a moose hunt that I was on and I went back and looked at my heart rate you know, from my watch when I actually took the shot and I was in the one sixties somewhere and I was calm. Like I was, I was physically calm. I was, I was in a static location. I wasn't like exerting myself, but I was excited through, you know, all the chemicals that were going through my body and that was causing my heart rate to go way up. And I know about myself that I will skip 
portions of my process as soon as my heart rate gets, you know, north of 130 somewhere. And at 160, my judgment has completely gone out the window. And that's when I start needing to like go back through the process again and make sure, okay, did I actually do all these things? Now, am I ready to do this? When you're talking about stress, it's not just a state of mind so much as the chemicals that are actually in your body at the time, right? That's correct. And there, there's a lot of, a lot of, there's a big party going on in the brain that's releasing a lot of chemicals and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, it, and it goes down to, you know, to your respiration rate, to your heart and, and your gut as well. And all those, all those organs and, and systems are, are re relating well to each other or, or not. And the brain, our view of those things doing what they need to do to survive or thrive is really important because and that's where we get hemp wrapped around the axle is, is our view of it because you've been in that heightened state of stress before in your life you can say i've been here before and i know what to do and why contingency planning is so important and and why structure hierarchy and organization is, is so important if you look at just the basic fundamentals of a chain of command it exists for when things go south not so much when things are going well and and as i've heard from other folks before was if you don't know what to do, create chaos because you're going to learn people's strengths and weaknesses pretty quickly. And, and character traits will always come out in the face of adversity. So, um, but yeah, the, the chemical process, when you start looking at stress hormones being released in the brain, it's activating a lot going on. It takes a lot for your motor, your motor skills to do something. There's a lot of things going on at a fast rate of speed. And if you've had some trauma in that space or you've had some really bad outcomes, and I would say trauma... Trauma and bad outcomes in a high competitive state is really a matter of interpretation at that point. And so, so that's that reappraisal phase. Correct. Yep. Okay. And, uh, you know, what I found is that if I, if I get into this, this anxious state, um, in a, in a shooting or hunting scenario, if I remember to talk to myself in a positive way, then, uh, then my, my outcome tends to be better. So if I say, Hey, you're a good shot. You've made harder shots than this before. You know, that's a reappraisal of previous outcomes. And then I can settle down into it and be like, okay, here we go. No big deal. If you have had those bad outcomes before, is there a way to reappraise them in a positive way? Um, so that the next time you experience stress, you feel confident going into that situation? Absolutely. And I think if you asked probably five different psychologists, the same question, you might, you might get some different responses, but all centered around the same outcome. And, and myself, my, my belief is it comes down to three, three areas, which is basically how you think about things, how you feel about things and how you behave in certain situations. What's the difference between thinking, feeling, and behaving? It's a, it's a great question. And what I would say is, is that if you think about thoughts is, is that like, use the statement, I think I'm sad or I feel sad, or I think I'm happy or I feel happy. I think I'm excited or I feel excited. With the, the correct, correct language there is I, I feel sad as a result of thinking that I'm not a very good shot or uh, sad, such a depressing term, but I think I'm, sure. uh, I, 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 I'm embarrassed. I feel embarrassed as a result of thinking that I can't make this shot. And when I think and feel that way, my behaviors, what I'm doing are going to be altered. I might get shaky hands. I might get uh, sweaty palms. I might get an increased heart rate. Uh, I might notice that increased heart rate. All the things that we're doing and behaviorally what comes out of my mouth might change as well. It may not necessarily be my thoughts. It might be just like garbage that comes out of your mouth, which is why you get impulsivity or you get quick on the trigger, uh, anticipation of a, of a trigger pull. 
And, and so I like to separate those things in those three different buckets because if I'm a really visceral kind of like meat eater, if you will, like an angry guy, I might notice that behavior first such as the result of anger or the result of sadness before I notice the thoughts and the feelings. And the way that I was taught as a young grad student is, is that oftentimes we can't control our feelings, but we can control our response to those feelings. And if you move from a reaction to a response, we're going to make better decisions under, under a, a stressful state. And so um, we tend to, when I say we, people in my career field tend to focus on the thoughts and the behaviors and knowing that our feelings are going to come and go. Um, and some, some rules of thumb that I always think about is, is thoughts are not always facts or just thoughts. Um, feelings are things that are, are kind of like a, a barometer for understanding kind of where we're at. And then our behaviors are things that are in our complete control. And sometimes you can't control some thoughts that come into your brain, especially when you're in a high pressure state. But if you look at a lot of the literature from a contingency planning standpoint, if I make a bad shot or I make a bad pitch or a bad, um, just a mistake, can I contingency plan how to be proactive versus reactive in those states of stress? So if you miss a shot, hey, I missed that shot, it was suboptimal, but I'm going to come back and focus on the next shot. If I uh, misplace a pitch or I strike out, um, it, was sub, it was a suboptimal outcome, but I'm going to come back and focus on my breathing or my respiration rate or my focus or stay present moment focus. And this is where you'll, you'll hear a lot of talk about the mindfulness culture right now, which has some of those, some of those mechanisms in place, which is basically accepting where you're at without judgment and focusing on the task at hand. Just being present with the situation that you're in. Correct. Without judgment, because judgment is where the emotion and the anxiety and the frustration tolerance kind of lies. And, and I'm a firm believer that Everything that happens in this world is neutral. We just apply meaning to it. Things are neither good nor bad, but thinking makes them so. Those are some trait. No, those are some lines that, that kind of get thrown around in my head a little bit when I'm working with folks. Interesting. And I kind of got excited and missed this part. But now you work in uh, in professional sports. Of course, we're teasing at this this sports thread quite a bit, um, especially baseball. So you're a psychologist for a professional um, baseball team now. That's correct. Yeah, I've, I've been working in baseball for since 2000, since I got out of the Navy, since I exited in the Navy in 2017. So this is my my fourth year working in baseball. And, um, you know, the Navy afforded me a lot of opportunities to be exposed to the professional sporting space. And uh, being a former athlete, something that I always wanted to do as a psychologist is work in professional sports. And um, I coached many moons ago as well. And so we're bridging that gap. And and me not being a professional athlete, just like I wasn't a Marine. And, uh, you know, you, you, you learn how to develop empathy in working with elite athletes because they face a lot of similar stressors that the average human being does. They're just expected to do it under uh, 40,000 fans or 30,000 fans. And, and so we, we, my job now is to look at performing under pressure. It's also to look at selection of, of amateur players in terms of strengths and weaknesses and, and then coaching up our coaches on how to work with with athletes. I love that for you. You know, you've always been such a big sports guy and getting to do this. Um, I, I know you're excited about it. And uh, I, I just think it's so cool that you get to work in that field and, and help people. I'm curious, and you may not be able to, to answer this, but uh, are Marines or baseball players bigger whiners? <laughs> 
<laughs> Marines are way <laughs> bigger. Uh, <laughs> um, what is the saying? Uh, uh, in the Navy, we'd say a, a, a bitchin' sailor is a happy sailor, right? Something like that. Like, yeah. but uh, Marines are way bigger whiners. Uh, <laughs> <for> sure. <laughs> oh, I knew it. I knew it. That's too funny. <laughs> Oh man. So where, what's the trajectory of this career? Do, do you ride this out and, until you're, you know, a crusty old man sitting in the, in the dugout knee deep and uh, you know, whatever synthetic chewing tobacco is allowed at that time? <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, we're, we're playing it year by year at this point. Like I'm having a blast when I'm doing, you know, been able to develop an apartment um, in professional baseball and, you know, psychology, just like with the Marine Corps and even working with Naval Special Warfare, it's it's such a burgeoning field that like 20 years ago, it was unheard of to have a full-time psychologist, let alone a department working in baseball, the same way it was in the Marine Corps and and, and working with Naval Special Warfare. So I'm excited about the evolution of this of this career field because I think 10 years from now, we're going to look back and, and people are going to hopefully value this this space more and more and more um you know we have to refine a lot in this industry just in terms of separating specialty areas but um but yeah i, I think we're, we're taking it year by year at this point having a blast developing an apartment working for for a really good organization and and um right now i'm not too old to not relate to the guys but i, I think there will come a time when i'm too old to relate to this population and hopefully that means that i've advanced in some level well, I don't know. You're, you're a pretty relatable human. And I think that that's, that's one of your talents within your profession is that you find ways to relate to people who are having experiences that are outside of your own. So I, I really don't see that changing for you, but I do hope that the advancement comes along. I see that as, as a separate thing. Within archery, um, one of the big buzzwords out there is target panic. It's an interesting thing. Um, and it's different from firing a gun because uh, with archery, you draw a bow and you're under pressure and you have all this potential energy that's built up into this bow and you've pulled into this bowstring and you're, you're under physical restraint, holding back until it's time to release this arrow when you believe it's pointed in the correct direction. And bows are finicky. Um, if you put too much pressure with your cheek into the string or your nose doesn't touch it quite right or the grip of your of your supporting hand has any amount of torque or, or offset pressure, then everything comes apart and, and your release has to be perfect. But under this amount of pressure, it feels like your brain wants nothing more than to get this over with. Um, like let's let this explosion happen and get it done with. And, and that pressure builds in your mind much more so than it builds in your muscle. And then people experience target panic and the wheels fall off the fucking bus completely. And they do some really bizarre stuff that results in missing. Do you have anything to, to offer archers who are, who are suffering from this? Because it's something that develops, especially in experienced archers, which is another interesting thing. Like new to the sport, people tend to shoot really, really well as soon as they get the, the technical proficiency aspect of it down. Whereas as they go, I think maybe they build up a catalog of, of negative outcomes and then that starts to to eat at their mind. So what do you have to say about target panic? Oh, that's, that's really interesting and not working. I've read some, some work on ancient archery just because, and I've, 
I've, I've dabbled with just recurve bows uh, in my in my time just because I think it's a lot of fun to fun to shoot but I wouldn't I would, I'm below a novice is what I would say on, on my knowledge uh, my knowledge and skill set with archers but what I would say is is that anytime you start focusing on the outcome um, and when we, we deal a lot deal with this a lot with pitchers as well is, is that um, you know once the once the ball leaves your hand there's not a whole lot you can do about it once the arrow leaves, um, leaves your hand, there's not a whole lot you can do about it either. And so resulting is, is going to oftentimes cause more anxiety. Now you're, you're in a competitive space, so results do matter. But that process and how you get to the results is where the, the focus probably should lie in. And, and again, thinking about the two feet around you, I, I love the target analogy. And we talk about this a lot in stress, stress work too, is, is What's the most important to me right now in this moment, which is like the two feet around me. And then once I'm mastered that two feet around me, what about the three feet around me? And then you move out the target. And, and, and so from a brain-based standpoint, when we have some sort of anxiety related to outcomes, we need to probably shift our focus from the outcome and focus on what we're actually putting in our mind. And so I'll relate this to pitchers a little bit. And again, you correct me if I'm wrong because I don't have it all figured out, but the, from a, from a pitching standpoint, there's usually about 18 seconds uh, in between pitches uh, in a major league baseball game. And so we talk about a lot is how are you going to occupy the 18 seconds of time? So when you draw back a, a bow, how much time does that last? And what should your mind be focused on? Now, I use that term should really, really cautiously because should oftentimes implies that 100% certainty that something is going to happen. I wanted to get into that word with you because that's one of the things that I remember us talking about, but I couldn't remember the details of. Yeah. So should is, 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 uh, is a flag for an irrational belief or, or putting a lot of pressure on ourselves. And when we're talking about elite sports or elite shooting, we're, we're, we're assuming that the population is, is not dealing with any significant mental health barrier or they've been able to compartmentalize that to focus on the task at hand from, an, from a competitive standpoint. And so um, when you see someone make a shot or miss a shot and, or miss a throw, they say, ah, I should have made that throw. Well, that's, you're actually implying that there is some failure that happened there. And, and that's also helping preventing you from kind of moving on to the next pitch, next, next draw, whatever you want to call that next shot. And so be, be, cautful, be cautious of that terminology. And so we, we talk about shoulds, have to, must, always, never, ought to. Those are all pressure words that can be a little bit of a flag for irrational beliefs or undue pressure. And so, um, and, I, and I think you, you may remember this, I always use the analogy of how many people who say I should quit smoking actually are successful at quitting smoking. And, and or I, I should lose, I need to lose some weight. How many people are really successful at that? And, and it damages your self-concept, your self-esteem, and, and and puts a lot of pressure on yourself versus, okay, going back to the performance example, like, what am I putting in my target zone or in the two feet around me to increase the odds of me executing a good shot, good throw, good uh, good pitch? What am I, how am I occupying that time and that time and space with these thoughts? And um, and then it goes back to all those thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. How am I feeling? What am I thinking? And what am I actually doing? Um, and when we apply tension with a bow, drawing back a bow, that, that can elevate some anxiety because you're getting probably an increase in a sympathetic state on some level. 
Um, so I hope I'm not going too fast there, but, but uh, the idea is, is what am I clouding my mind with? What am I putting in my mind during that time? And if I'm putting a lot of self-doubt, a lot of self-deprecating thoughts, a lot of uncertainty, then what am I likely going to get from a feeling and behavior standpoint? Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it's the same concept. Like we, I feel like we keep talking about the same thing because it does apply to whatever you're doing. It doesn't really matter if you're throwing a pitch or if you're trying to, you know, load a machine gun on top of a tank, or if you're shooting a bow or, or firing a rifle, whatever, focusing on the process and in your behavior throughout that process and not on the outcome will deliver a better outcome. Correct. Yeah. And when you're practicing, when you're practicing, are we replicating that process or are we just kind of willy nilly going through stuff? And, yes. and this is where a lot of people, this is where the military has the advantage because it's, it, you know, it, it's a hyper competitive state most of the time when you're, when you're actually practicing. And so there's some sort of incentive to do well, whether it be promotion, whether it be um, good outcomes, whether it be uh, a ranking. You know, I think it was Napoleon that said a man will go to great lengths for a piece of cloth. And that's why their uniforms look like a Christmas tree, right? It's because they can get a medal for anything. And our U.S. military does a decent job of that as well. And when you're in a true incentive-based sport like baseball, you know, you get incentivized through outcomes and promotion throughout throughout development. And I think competitive archery, competitive shooting, I think you, it's finding those types of ways to practice competition in your process. Because if you, if you have a process in a competitive state, but don't replicate it in practicing, then, then that's a bad process. One of the ways that we talk about it in shooting is as two, two polar tensions with, with you in the middle. And one of them being the fear of loss and the other being the desire for gain. And both of those are outcome-based fears and they're not real. They're, they're imagined and we suffer worse in imagination than we do in reality. I believe was a quote from Seneca or, you know, one of those old Stoics, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. You know, we talk about like my hand or my thought or what, what, what thoughts am I allowing to be in my mind and how, how am I behaving that that's consciousness, right? Isn't, isn't that what we're talking about there? Um, Correct. Which is consciousness with judgment most generally. Yeah. Uh, and, and we want to try to minimize the judgment and a simple mnemonic that, that I often talk about is, is recognize, dismiss, and execute. Recognize the dysfunction, dismiss it, and execute. And most sports, whether you're, or even in, in the war fighting world, it comes down to one term, which is execution. Yeah. And what, what's in my buckets to improve my chances of execution from a psychological standpoint, and what's gonna distract me from being able to execute. And I know you've seen this, anytime that we have family baggage or things going on at home, how do I, you know, that's a good place to look at in terms of like, not saying that family baggage is going to inhibit the shot. What I'm saying is, is how we handle our off the field stressors or it's a good indicator of where to go and how we're going to handle things when it matters from a competitive standpoint. And so we want to be able to look at that and understand how our mind and body operates under pressure. And oftentimes people don't know that until the, the highest stakes are, are there. One of the things that, that I try to do for, for hunting clients, and now that we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm wondering whether I'm doing the right thing or not, but 
I see people start to premeditate the process before it's time to actually do the process. And, you know, an, an example would be an elk hunt that I guided this weekend. Um, it was the second time this person had been out with me the previous time she had not been successful because she forgot to take the safety off. So when the elk was standing there and everything was ready, she was yarding on that trigger, trying to straighten that thing out and uh, guns don't fire unless you, you put them on fire. So that's uh, th that was a situation that was very much on her mind for this. And I could tell that as we were seeing these elk this next time, she was completely focused on how she was going to go through this process, especially on how she was going to take the rifle off safety. And it looked to me like her stress levels were rising and she was maybe starting to get a little bit clumsy in movements and, and things like what you're describing where stress causes some of the, the minor functions to, to cease to function properly. So what, what I did there and what I usually do is I try to break people out of that process thought and say, okay, let's just get present in the moment. Let's just watch these elk. Like we've got the wind, right? They don't know we're here. They can't see us. We're wearing good camouflage. Everything's good. Let's just enjoy this for a second. And, and then we can get back into the process when it's time for that. Is that doing the wrong thing or is that doing the right thing? No, I think that's, that's really good in the moment because at that point, if you don't regulate your nervous system at that point, you're not going to make any decision well. And I've heard you talk on one of your previous podcasts about just contingency planning, and that's where the contingency planning is so important, right? Because contingency planning is, although everybody hates doing it, no one enjoys doing contingency planning, no one enjoys practicing for contingency planning, but what you're describing there is a, a contingent situation, is, is that your safety, you, you forgot to switch the safety off, and therefore you made some mistakes, and now the next time that this happens, right, you're, you're, you're having some self-confidence issues in that moment, so I think the best thing you can do is come back to present moment at that space. What else can you do? You can you got to ride that emotion until it comes back down the mountain, until you come in a more rational state of mind. Because the outcome, what you're saying is, is the outcome is probably going to be the same, right? Is if you if you go through your process at that point, you're probably going to make a bunch of bad decisions, which you're going to miss a shot. If you step away, regroup, and and come back, then your chances are you're probably going to make a better shot at that point or better decisions. And so in that moment, that's pretty much. I would say all you can do, um, and then this is why the, the front load work of contingency planning and understanding how you operate under stress is so important. And we see pitchers do that from time to time. Like it looks like they're getting ready to go and then something isn't quite right. So they completely reset and start the process over again. Is, is that coming from guys like you saying, hey, this, this is what you need to be doing? I think so. I think uh, I wouldn't say all the time. Some guys just naturally do things. And those are the guys that you, you envy, right? Because you're like, man, you just do this really well. And you do it, it comes naturally to you to contingency plan or to step off and reset. But yeah, I mean, guys like me, um, that's what we coach these guys on is, is okay, um, if you're not executing well and your mind is racing, how do we reset in that moment to regain control of the situation? Because if you know anything, the, the best way to stress out any human being is to make their life unpredictable. And whether that's conscious or unconscious or a situation that's, that's making that happen, it, it, it's the perception there is that, is, is that it's unpredictable. When do you think humans developed consciousness as a species? Wow. We went deep there, huh? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that I can answer that question. I, I think that uh, I think we know that temperament starts to show its, its head around two years old. Uh, your temperament... 
Um, at two, you start to see glances. If you believe that human beings are a function of the person, Kurt Lewin used to say this, human beings are a function of the person and the environment. And, and he had the rough estimate that it was 60% person, 40% environment. And uh, so your temperament starts to, to show its head around two, uh, not saying it's, it's static at that point, but you start to see some foundational things. Um, and, and so consciousness is, is something that is, is a very complex thing that I don't think we've studied real well. Um, although psychologists have talked about it for years and Stoics talked about it, um, I, I don't know that we can really state when it comes about. But I, again, that, that may be the wrong flavor for me too. So I, I can, I can, I can uh, share my ignorance on that. But I think it's a, it's a really introspective question. Yeah. Consciousness is a, is a really interesting thing to me. Um, and I I look at my dog sometimes and I'm like, do you know, <laughs> do you think of yourself as a, as, as a dog or as an individual? I, I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. It's fun to think about. It is fun to think about. I, I think it's such a complex, complex thing. And, and I mean, we, we have to show, we know when hormones start to develop that there's a lot of things going on in the brain, but emotional regulation starts to you start thinking about how we learn to regulate emotions. We, we don't come out of the womb rational human beings. Yeah. Our, our, the environment shapes rational thought, and, and we evolve from that, and we adapt to the environment, and the environment adapts to us. I, I'm pretty confident in that answer. But, um, and what a tremendous advantage that, that that's how we function, so that whatever environment we're born into, we learn how to function within that environment. Like That's, that's such a tremendous survival benefit. 100%. And that's why some people uh, prefer the military route, because that, that structure and predictability helps them adapt at a much faster rate, and they can adapt to them much quicker. But And it's why some people don't adapt very well, which is why their time in the military is oftentimes short-lived. Yeah. <laughs> or, expedi or expedited. <laughs> yeah. I should mention that the, the hunter from, from my anecdote previously, um, she is a, a very competitive person. She was also in the military. And when it came time, she became very, very calm, focused on the process and made a wonderful shot and, uh, and got her elk. And, you know, we, we had had some tenderloin for dinner the other night and it was wonderful. That sounds fantastic. So I yeah. got to ask, if you had to do all over again, would you have, would you have changed your approach on, on taking a step out and, and relaxing and coming back? No, I, and I try to do that for myself now um, as well. When, when I'm the one who's on the trigger, I, I try to take that moment to, to just just look around, um, settle into the environment, take your eyes off the animal, maybe, um, you know, think, think about the totality of the circumstances. And, and I find that very calming so that I can come back into it. The other thing that I find about it is that it enhances my memory of that situation later on, because it, it brings so much more into it than, than this very narrow vector of the goal of, you know, your intended outcome. And it, it helps you remember, like, you know, I, I can think of my, my mountain goat hunt on Kodiak last year, and we're sitting on this little tiny reef of a ridge. And, you know, there was a literal freaking hurricane coming off of the North Pacific Ocean, and we could see these clouds boiling in and, you know, uh, low clouds were starting to jet across these ridges. And, um, I can remember the color of the grass and I can remember, you know, which way this mountain goat was facing. And then I can remember the sound of the rifle as I put it on onto my shooting bag on top of this rock. 
I don't believe I would be able to remember all of that if I'd been focused completely on the animal and on the rifle and on the shooting process. So taking that moment beforehand is really important for, for me personally and in, in building a, a larger moment with more context around it. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about trust. You, you kind of alluded to that a little bit. And, and I'm curious in your thoughts on this, because oftentimes what I will say to our pitchers, for example, is, is that I think, I think shooting a weapon is almost a little less complex than pitching because with pitching you you worry about arm slot moisture on the ball you worry about um so arm slot meaning repeating your delivery under pressure but also sometimes the ball just doesn't fly well the leather on the ball is completely different and you also have an opposing batter and an umpire that's actually dictating a little bit of your circumstances at that point in time and so one of the things that we've discussed is has been with shooting a weapon if your weapon's clean and it's really good ammunition and you how much trust do you put into those things and which allows you to focus more on internal processes versus the machine doing the job for you or trusting that the animal is going to do going to act in a certain way. Can you, I'm curious in your opinions on, on trust. What I see people um, as they become more experienced in the sport, um, the sport of hunting or, or competitive shooting for that matter is they, they get the very best equipment that works for them that they can afford so that they can eliminate doubt in the equipment. Um, and they want, or they say they want um, any failure that occurs to be solely on their own performance and not on the gear. I've gotten to the point where uh, I feel like I trust equipment maybe too much, but I, I trust it very much. And I, I do use very good gear that's mostly out of respect to the animal. I want to use the, the most lethal equipment that I can possibly bring to bear. And occasionally I'll come across situations where it's like, you know, I think it would be cool if I used this to hunt this because of how I feel about that particular gun or bow or whatever. And I try to reset and be like, okay, ethically, I want to use whatever's the most effective. And that may not be the thing that I think is the most cool or interesting. So I fall back on the ethics, but what I think about as far as trust in the equipment is if, if I know that this works because I've tested it and I know that it's sighted in because I did that. And I know that my skills are up to par because I developed them and I go through this process. What has to happen if, if my sights are lined up appropriately on this target and I press the trigger without disturbing my sight picture, what has to happen is that the bullet lands where I intend for it to. So I don't get concerned about the voodoo of it anymore. And I used to, especially archers. Archers are all about voodoo. Like they, they think that there's definitely sorcery involved in the shot process and what happens you know, once the arrow leaves. But there's not. It's, it is a controlled and, and predictable and understandable environment, even though there's skills that go into understanding and predicting you know, some of those exterior elements. So I, I think that trust is important, but it, it definitely stems from experience and in appraisals of those previous outcomes. Like, did, did you test this? Did you test yourself? And if so, did everything work out? Okay. Now you can just focus on the process and, and not focus on the outcome. So, so on some level, the after action report, what you're saying is after action report on yourself is so important on the gear. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's, 
there's probably way too much focus within hunting and shooting on gear and there's nowhere near enough focus on, on the mental aspect of it, which is why I was so excited to talk with you about this stuff today, because every shooter will tell you, Oh, it's 90% mental. It's 90%. Okay. Well, what do you do when you practice? Oh, I go out and I set up and I shoot and blah, blah, blah. It's all physical stuff. It's like, well, how, what are you doing to improve your mental game? I read a book like seven years ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was it good <laughs> yeah it's usually a pop psychology book on some level right like it's sure it's, uh, it, in your you're highlighting something near and dear to my heart and you know something is just sympathetic parasympathetic response and just breathe just practicing breathing and then yeah. practicing breathing while under duress are completely two different things i know it's not sexy i know it's not fun like practicing breathing is not really a fun thing but in a survival situation, the rules of three are really applicable there, right? I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's three, three minutes without air, you die. Three days without water, you die. Three weeks without food, you die. And so your airway is so important. And, and if you've done any sort of combat life-saving training, like clearing the airway is the most relative thing, stopping any major carotid artery. But like stop, clearing the airway is one of the most important things that you can do. And I, check, I know check, breathing. check for check for breathing. Stop the bleeding. Correct. Pretty simple stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, the mental game of any sort of competitive art, sport, uh, combat, like I understand it's not fun. It's not sexy. There's a lot of fundamental skills that, that take place and where we get really, really gray is on which one of those things are really important for the human being. And I don't think science is necessarily where it needs to be. I think we've got a lot of good stuff out there. I think there's a lot of good fundamentals, but they're not, they're not sexy. Like you mean you just want me to practice breathing 20 minutes a day. Yeah. That's what I want you to do, but I want you to do it with perfection. And then I want you to do it in cold water, or I want you to do it in extreme conditions, or I want you to do it um, in replicating processes that you're going to experience under stress because that breathing does you no function if you can't execute it under duress. In, in you're hitting on something that I wanted to bring up earlier, but there's a lot of misconceptions about practice. And I feel like we, we grew up with this, this phrase that practice makes perfect, but it doesn't practice makes permanent. Um, but making your practice relevant, applicable, realistic, um, repeatable, those are very, very important and, and underrated. Correct. Intentional practice is what we like to say. Is yeah. What's the intent of doing this? And we would talk about this with instructors. Why did you do that? What was your purpose in doing that? And if you don't have intent, then you need to reevaluate the reason. Otherwise, you're wasting repetitions and time. And in and, and the performance world, like you, don't have, you do have time, but you don't want to waste it. You need to be as efficient as possible. So your intentional practice is such an important aspect of, of development. And like the cold water thing, practicing in, in less than ideal conditions Um, like if it's super windy, I'm going to go shoot because those, those are the most difficult conditions to shoot in. And that's the only way to learn. And if you think about physiologically, Jim, like if your heart rate got up to 160 and you're an experienced, experienced shooter, you've, you've thrown a lot of, a lot of lead, uh, in your career. Like how often do your practice sessions replicate 160? That's a good place to start. Just the physiological state. Yeah, never. And, and especially Um, like the only way for me to get there in a practice setting is to do physical exertion. Um, I, I don't know how to stress myself out, you know, psych myself up enough that, you know, I'm just sitting there like a, 
like a sports car neutral with a, with a throttle on the floor. Um, but that's kind of what's happening in the realistic situation. So if I do it through physical exertion, now I have muscle fatigue and some other things, maybe it's the best that I can do, but that's what I have to do. When I was in uh, tank school, the first time I ever shot a gunnery range, I went down the course. It was in Fort Knox, Kentucky, and we shot every single target. We, we had a perfect run and we were feeling really proud of ourselves. And the instructor came in and, uh, you know, it's a little bit different Marine Corps at that time, but he said, uh, a retarded monkey could shoot this range with a full up system. I was like, Oh, ouch, that kind of hurt. Um, you know, I felt like that was complicated, but, uh, maybe I'm not giving monkeys enough credit, but in, in a lot of ways he was right. It, you know, a lot of people can function at a really high level when everything is going well, but as soon as you start adding friction, inducing stress, then it, it gets worse. So we, we've got to practice under those situations and inoculate ourselves to that stress so that we can perform when things aren't going quite right. And this is something that's not novel, right? I mean, if you look back at the history and heritage of man of performers, if you're familiar with Mushashi Miyamoto, I wouldn't butcher his, his name there, but the, the, one of the best samurais to walk the planet. You know, he, he practiced by challenging himself to better competitors every duel. Um, you know, the Romans did this. You start looking at people who came before us. You know, I, I, read, I recently read Ricks and Gracie's autobiography, and, and some of the stuff that that guy did was so far advanced in the jujitsu world. Uh, you know, he would, he would wrap himself in 100-degree weather and a roll of carpet to tap his mind on how he operated under that, sta under that state to calm himself down. Uh, or he would submerge himself completely in a cold water tub with a, um, with a snorkel because it's one thing to sit in a cold water tub and, and meditate. It's another thing to do it when your face is submerged. Sure. And so, um, you know, people who are experts in their field, if you go back, you'll, you'll see that this, this has been done before. I think the modern day human sometimes struggles with creative ways to do that because we have so much technology that helps us. Yep. I had Hoist Gracie at a shooting competition this summer. And I think that's, is it Hickson's brother or his cousin? I'm not sure how, how the whole, you know, Grace, Gracie universe breaks down there, but he was talking about the relationship between students and instructors. And he said that he didn't believe that there was such a thing as a bad student. And he would actually fire an instructor for saying so. And immediately after that, he said, and in this environment, I am the student. So if I fuck up, it's your fault. I was like, okay, sounds good. Hoisted. Don't hurt me. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. That would be intimidating to me, especially for a guy who's developed so many instructors. Right. Uh, for, but you, but you're the subject matter expert, right? Like you in that space. And this is something and and I struggle with internally as well is, is, you know, I'm the subject matter expert on psychological performance under pressure. Um, I mean, I, I can't tell you, I couldn't tell you how to shoot a, a mortar round by any means, but but uh, we can talk about the mind and body under stress. And um, you know, I'm open to learning, but at the same time, like I, I understand my swim lane. Yep. And you're you're. I just love this. I I could keep this conversation going indefinitely. What are some resources that people can follow up with that you recommend? Are are there some books? Are there some videos? Like, how can people who want to take this seriously? and and improve 
the, the capability of their own minds and bodies, um, starting with their minds, what, what can they do? Well, I think first is, is knowledge is power. I think in any of this, if you enjoy reading, I think there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of really good stuff out there, but I think taking the, what have people like me gone through before and how do they train the mind and the body? That's one aspect. That's probably a little more enjoyable. Um, you know, there's a, there's a book that I really enjoy is a recommended read for mine. It's called nerve by Taylor Clark. Um, and that's a fantastic, just, um, it's out of, out of circulation now, but I know you can still get it. It's a really fantastic book on just performing under pressure. It adds a lot more science than just opinion. You know, I'm always, I always caution people on, um, what books and how books, right? Is, is oftentimes the pop psych space is, is what the problem is, but not necessarily how to fix the problems or how to, how to sharpen the sword. And so, uh, but nerve, I think bridges that gap really well. I'm blanking on, I think I have it, The Mental Rules of Marksmanship, I think is another f- really good book that I, I really enjoy. And I'm blanking on the author's name. I can, I can send it to you, Jim, but it's a uh, really good marks, marksmanship book. And then The Psychology of Enhancing Performance is okay. uh, another really good one by Moore and Gardner. Okay. Um, and it does, talks a little bit more about traditional psychological skills training and acceptance-based psychological skills training. It's a little more uh, textbook-esque, but I, I think, uh, again, knowledge is power and using, using application of, of, these, of these tools and trades. So I think there's a lot of things out, out there for sure. What's the worst pop psychology book uh, that you've come across? It's like a popular one that just gets under your skin. Oh man, you! I, I don't know. If I can kick someone under the bus, Jim. Uh, I, I, there's there's so many so many. Out, I think people are just mis, misguided uh, <laughs> on, You're on too some nice. of these things. I, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I uh, there there are some that are mainstream that usually, if it's personal experience, I, I struggle with that a lot okay. because, as we know, our mind and body don't operate really. We don't remember everything. Like if you would have asked me about that tank experience, I would have omitted a lot of details that you did not omit um, because I was under a heightened state of stress. And so when we're telling, when we're telling stories about ourselves through stressful experiences, I'm really always cautious if you don't have a subject matter expert kind of taglining that and, and when you're teaching things. And because that means you're teaching it through your lens. And I think that's okay. It's okay that it has a place, but I would, I would urge people to be cautioned and start with fundamentals first and then branch out of fundamentals. In all things, that's that's good advice for all things. Correct. Yeah, be be brilliant in the basics. Uh, I, I really like that. Uh, it's like the three Bs: be bold, be brilliant, be brief. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and, and I think with that, sir, we will conclude this uh, this episode. Thank you so much for your time, and it's just great to catch up again. I'm 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 just thrilled to see you in this environment and, and doing well. I think it's awesome. Thank you, Jim. It was great catching up. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. 
It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.